Revelation chapter 3, beginning with verse 14. And to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing, and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich, and white garments that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed. And anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne. And as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. As we've done with each of these seven letters, we'll do with the last. We'll start with a bit of backdrop concerning this church in the first, in the first century located in Laodicea. The city was about 45 miles south of Philadelphia, about 100 miles east of Ephesus. The city of Laodicea was well known throughout the Roman world for two important exports. She was known for exporting black wool that was used in clothing as well as a powder that could be mixed with olive oil that was used to treat eye infections because the city was, as many of the other ones, located on an important trade route. They were able to kind of minimize overhead cost through the exports, making Laodicea very rich, very wealthy. In 60 AD, 60 AD, Laodicea was destroyed by a massive earthquake. Nero, uh, feeling for the city, the plight of the city, offered uh, financial assistance, you know, to help with the rebuilding process. And yet the residents of Laodicea were so well off, they refused Roman assistance, choosing to instead rebuild their city on their own. Additionally, Laodicea was part of a tri-city water arrangement with Colossae, which was about 11 miles west, and Heropolis, about six miles south. Because Laodicea possessed no natural water resource of her own, the city was dependent on two different aqueducts that would pipe in water from these two sister cities. As far as the formation of the church of Laodicea goes, uh, we have more information about the formation of this church than many of the others. It seems likely that the church of Laodicea was founded, none other than by the Apostle Paul, and originally met in the home of a man named Nephus, Colossians chapter 4, verse 15. Four times, by the way, in Paul's letter to the Colossians, he will mention the brethren in Laodicea, as well as the church located in Heropolis. According to Colossians 4, verse 16, Paul had even at some point written an epistle to the Laodiceans that he intended to have circulate amongst these three cities. Uh, we don't have the letter. We don't have a transcript of the letter, but we do know a letter existed. Sadly, while it, while it would appear this Laodicean church started strong, I mean, founded by the Apostle Paul, having letters written to you by the Apostle Paul. I mean, this church began with a wonderful legacy. And yet, by the end of the first century, when Jesus is writing to this church, she had fallen so far from her original mandate that Jesus would find nothing about her commendable. Tragically, Jesus' criticisms of this church would label her for all of history, as kind of a sort of anti-Philadelphia. The fact of the matter is that she presented, she represented characteristics of not a faithful church, 
but an unfaithful one. Now, before we get to the text, let's set some historical context for the church of Laodicea. As the missional church, the church of Philadelphia, uh, continued its work through the 18th and 19th centuries, preaching God's word, sending out missionaries, equipped with the gospel across the globe. By the 20th century, not only had the world changed, but the church would find itself challenged in dramatic ways. First, you had the atrocities of two global wars, world wars, that yielded approximately 100 million casualties. The atrocities of these conflicts, coupled with the fact that during the century you had conflicts in Vietnam, Korea, you had a Cold War. These things would produce, as a matter of fact, several generations of men completely disillusioned when it came to the things of God, whether God was interested in the affairs of man or any matters of spirituality. There was a disillusionment within the men returning, seeing their friends die brutal death, seeing the type of, 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 of acts committed in these type of conflicts. Disillusionment. There was a second thing. In an attempt to deal with the rapidly changing culture of all of these men coming back <clears throat> with such a perspective, the church sadly did something that I think it was well-meaning, but a poor choice. You see, what happened is that dealing with the men coming home, the church convoluted her message, her purpose, by becoming politically active. It's a truth that over the last hundred years, the evangelical church is known more for what she's against than what she's for. I'll give you just one example of many. Prohibition. When the men came home from World War I, they found, sadly, a church that was more interested in telling them what they could or couldn't drink than seeking to deal with their genuine spiritual needs. Evangelists, popular evangelists, like the ball player, Billy Sunday, railed against the vice of alcohol without ever speaking to a deeper spiritual wound that was driving so many men to such a destructive lifestyle. Finally, secular progressives during the 20th century would use science to attack the reliability of the Bible. In 1925, a court case being heard in the little town of Dayton, Tennessee, would be thrust into the national spotlight. The state of Tennessee versus John Thomas Scopes, which is commonly referred to as the Scopes Monkey Trial, would pit the Bible and science against one another. Sadly, if you know anything of the Scopes Monkey Trial, because the arguments presented by the prosecution and their witnesses seeking to defend a literal understanding of the Bible were so poor and ill-conceived, not only would, as a result of the trial, the theory of evolution gain credibility, but the reliability, the authority of the Bible would take a massive hit in the court of public opinion. Now, I know this is kind of a drive-by examination of the 20th century, but the Scopes monkey trial, coupled with various similar developments, would create a framework by which the philosophy of relativism would seep into the mainstream of American society. These things packaged together. Understand, the challenge the church was facing in the 20th century was very simple. How do you reach a culture of people disillusioned with God, alienated by the church's activism, and no longer confident in a fundamentalist view of the Bible? Two, two approaches emerged. First, the church of Philadelphia remained faithful. She remained faithful to her missional model of preaching God's word seeking to reach the lost world through missions and evangelism. During this time, faced with this crisis, 
of people leaving the church in droves, movements like Calvary Chapel in the late 60s and early 70s intentionally rejected stale traditionalism and instead embraced the culture by simply modernizing its style. They dropped the uber-pretentiousness of evangelicalism by allowing people to just come as they were. Flaws and warts and all. Movements like this emphasized not law or legalism, not tradition, but God's amazing grace. A dependency on the Holy Spirit and the exposition of the Bible. As Pastor Chuck's motto always was, simply teach God's word simply. And yet, while you had this Philadelphian approach to this problem, another approach would gain steam in the latter part of the 20th century. <clears throat> if the Protestant Reformation, this church of Sardis, was theology overreaching people, a revival of the mind, but not a revival of the heart. And the missional church was the perfect balance of the two, theology and reaching people. Then this final Laodicean church tragically emphasized reaching people over theology. Let me recap that. I think it's important. Protestant Reformation, theology over reaching people. Missional church, balance. Theology and reaching people. This Laodicean church, reaching people over theology. And it's in, in its historical context, it's easy to see why the church would adopt such a model. People no longer interested in the Bible, no longer with a faith in the Bible, still wanting to reach the people leaving the church, maybe de-emphasizing scripture would be the model. Though one could ascribe several church movements as being guilty of this particular approach, none has been more overt and their, their intention than what we know as the seeker-friendly movement, of which men like Bill Heibel from Willow Creek, Andy Stanley of North Point, and more recently Kevin Myers of Twelve Stone have proposed and successfully implemented. In order to be, and this is the, the whole framework, in order to be church for the unchurched, a place designed to appeal and reach the lost for Jesus, which is not a bad intention. These churches have intentionally created an environment designed to be inviting, designed to be accepting and entertaining so that a seeker can feel comfortable, comfortable enough to come to church and encounter God on their own pace. And to accomplish this, it's just the fact that these churches have all but eliminated Bible teaching by instead focusing on universally held truths and self-help antidotes. And while, and, and I need to be clear here, while I do not question, some have, I won't, while I will not question whether any of these men are brothers in Jesus, whether or not we'll spend eternity with them, whether they're even genuine in their desire to reach the lost. I think they absolutely are. I do believe though, that this model yields many of the unintended consequences that Jesus seeks to address in this letter to the church of Laodicea. Now, it would be easy for us to spend our time this morning looking at this letter and applying the substance of Jesus's criticisms to our own individual lives. I hope you do that on your own as we work our way through it. But I do think it's more important this morning that we consider the criticisms of Jesus in this letter and the context of the church that he's seeking to address. In a sense, and we're gonna kind of change some of the order in which we approach things, the big lesson, the thing you need to carry out of this letter to the Laodiceans is this. If you don't want any of the criticisms applied to your life, then don't go to a church that facilitates these types of behaviors and the lives of its members. As we approach this, just keep that in mind. If I don't want the criticisms that Jesus has for this church to be applied to me, then don't go to a church in which it's applied to, a church that facilitates what we might say to be lukewarmness. 
The first thing that we note from the text about this church is that Laodicea was a church without distinction. Look at how Jesus begins. He says, I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. While I wish that you were cold or hot, he concludes, you are lukewarm. Now in this initial criticism, Jesus is using here an illustration that the Laodiceans would have been very familiar with. They would have clearly understood. As we've noted, Laodicea was dependent on two separate aqueducts to pipe in water from Colossae and Heropolis. Interestingly enough, by the time the cold water that originated in the higher elevations of Colossae and the hot water that originated in a group of hot springs in Heropolis finally reached Laodicea, the water was characteristically lukewarm. Because of the distance that the water had to travel from their originating points to the city itself, what had begun as either hot or cold, by the time it reached Laodicea, it had leveled off to the temperature of its surroundings. In a sense, the water had become room temperature. It was neither hot nor cold. It was simply lukewarm. Sadly, the church of Laodicea was a church going through the motions. Spiritually speaking, this church possessed no fire. They weren't hot. There was no real zeal for righteousness or the things of God. There was no passion for truly following Jesus and being his witness in the world, living lives to the calling of Christ Jesus. These Laodiceans, on one end, they weren't full-blown heathens. Like they weren't overtly worldly, what, what one might call cold. But they also weren't fully committed to Jesus. They weren't hot. They were in the middle, this weird blasé. You might say this church models what many referred to, and you've heard the phrase, cultural Christianity. You know, when people claim to be a Christian solely because they go to church on Sunday. For these people, Christianity is a one-day activity, not a weekly lifestyle. Spiritual life, worship, and Bible study, and prayer, these things become compartmentalized only to a Sunday morning experience. In a sense, these Laodiceans were fence-sitters. They had enough church to feel morally superior to the rest of the world, enough church to feel good about themselves. But tragically, they also had enough of the world to fail to reap the full benefits of a genuine relationship with Jesus. You might say that their spiritual lives, being neither hot nor cold, were instead tepid. They were spiritually indifferent. They were spiritually compromised. The, the brutal reality is that there was nothing about this church that differentiated them from the world around them. It's the definition of lukewarmness. What was hot simply had become the temperature of its surroundings. What was cold had simply become the temperature of its surroundings. There was nothing distinct. You might say in their honest attempt to be relevant with the world, they had sacrificed the very things that made them distinct from the world. And don't forget, we've been called to holiness, which is by definition distinctiveness. It's a separation. This church, because it had become like the world and its style and its approach, its flavor, when you walked in, it now was no longer unique, no longer offered something different. While the seeker-friendly methodology intends to create an environment designed to reach the lost, which I think is in and of itself noble, the method, the method, an approach that creates an environment very similar to the world also creates the perfect conditions whereby a spiritually compromised believer 
can satisfy a need to feel spiritual without ever being in a place that challenges them to be spiritual. And this setting, while the intention is reaching the lost, it creates an environment where lukewarmness thrives in the hearts of genuine believers. You know, it's, it's really incredible. I mean, think about it. To consider that Jesus and his criticism here, he goes so far as to say this. Think about it. That he would prefer this church be cold than remain lukewarm. Like he so detests this spiritual condition. He says, I could wish, I wish more than anything, you're either hot, but I wish that you were cold over this, whatever this is. And why is this the case? Unlike those who are hostile to the things of God, what we might say to be cold, spiritual indifference has a tendency to lull someone into a very dangerous place. And that is a false sense of their own spiritual security. Which leads us to our second point. Laodicea was a church characterized by self-deception. Jesus continues, you say, now notice, notice, you say, I am rich. I have become wealthy. I have need of nothing. And yet you don't know that you're wretched and miserable, that you're poor, blind, and naked. You see, the alarming thing about this church was a disconnect. The disconnect between what they believed God thought of them and what God actually thought of them. In a sense, this church was delusional. And they were delusional for this reason. They had falsely equated material prosperity as being the evidence of spiritual blessing. And because they had done this, they had reached the false conclusion that God was pleased with them when in actuality, the opposite was the truth. While they genuinely believed they were deeply spiritual and effective and that God was pleased because, you know, they were rich. Literally, they're abounding in resources. And they were wealthy, which means they're, they're richly supplied. They're in need of nothing. Literally, no one. They're in need of no one. Totally self-sufficient, self-determined. But Jesus concludes they were instead. They were not rich or wealthy. They were not self-sufficient. They were wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. You see the disconnect there? what they thought about themselves and the reality of what Jesus actually thought of them? Sadly, I think many churches today are equally self-deceived. While they point to large attendance and vast financial resources as being the evidence of a successful ministry and God's pleasure, they fail to recognize this important point. None of these things are the metric by which Jesus evaluates his church. He does not evaluate his church by huge attendance, nor does he evaluate his church by huge resources. He has an entirely different evaluation method. Consider the fact that Jesus found the church of Smyrna to be commendable. No criticisms for the church of Smyrna. And the church of Smyrna was what? Jesus says, you're poor. I mean, you're dirt poor. They had nothing. And yet he commends them for being rich. And then you have the church of Philadelphia who couldn't boast like Laodicea that they had need of nothing or no one. The church of Philadelphia, Jesus says, you're a church with a little itsy bitsy bit of strength. But it's strength in the right thing. So you have what he says to, to Smyrna and, and to Philadelphia, a church poor and a church weak. But he commends them way more than this church who boasted in being rich and strong. Thirdly, aside from their self-deception, it would appear Laodicea was a church that was biblically ignorant. Like notice one of the core components of Jesus's criticism that actually explains why the Laodiceans were so off in their assessment and so self-deceived. He says, look at it. You say but you do not know. Like it's an interesting coupling. 
While it's true, they were delusional as to the true nature of their spiritual condition. They thought they were great when in reality they're spiritually bankrupt. What it fostered such a false perception? You say, but you don't know. Like, I hope you understand that when it comes to Christianity, when it comes to Christian belief, when it comes to your spiritual condition, when it comes to how you live a life of godliness or how a church is designed to function or the way that believers should reach the lost, when it comes to any of these things, what you say doesn't matter at all. It matters not. As a matter of fact, when it comes to these things, what I say doesn't matter a hill of beans. What matters more than anything else is not what you say or what I say, but rather what he says. Our opinions don't matter. God's truth dictates. This is why it's so vitally important. It's so crucial, critical, that a church teach the Bible. As we mentioned last Sunday, not from the Bible, but they teach the Bible. Because when she doesn't, what happens? The church and the people within the church become susceptible to self-deception, false assessment. The Laodiceans believed their physical riches were to be seen as evidence of spiritual favor when that position had no scriptural bearing. You look at a lot of the methodology of the church today, a lot of the things being preached from the pulpit. The only reason they are allowed, the only reason they exist is because there is a, a lack of biblical understanding amongst the people who sit in pews. We're not taught God's word, thus we don't understand God's word, and we get self-deceived by people who spit nonsense not found in God's word. People get led astray by false shepherds. What Jesus says matters. They did not know. Why? They did not know because they lacked Bible knowledge and understanding to know. Like, keep in mind, because the Bible is totally honest, and it's the authoritative word of God which makes it complete and insightful, because it's honest about your spiritual condition, it's the only place that a person can truly gain a proper assessment of oneself. Like James, James, the half-brother of Jesus, he would write in chapter 1, verses 21 and 25, Therefore, lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness. Receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man, observing his natural face in a mirror, for he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty, the word, and continues in it, and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the word, this one will be blessed in what he does. The word of God is a mirror by which you can gain a true assessment of where you're, of where you're actually at. So, for giggles, what does the Bible say about you? Like, where are you, actually? Where are you at? Well, it's clear from scripture that apart from Jesus, his work on the cross and his amazing grace, apart from that, you're wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. That's your condition apart from Jesus. And it's this one fact, this one reality, that this is what the Bible does. It doesn't allow us to, to settle into lukewarmness. It doesn't allow us to have a self-deception. It doesn't allow us to play religion. But when you teach the Bible and you put up this mirror and it presents it like it is, this real and raw reality that I can't self-help myself out of being wretched. I need Jesus. And apart from Jesus, I'm naked and I'm destitute. Like that's not a seeker-friendly presentation, is it? Like no one feels really good about the self-assessment of the Bible concerning you. The best you can do, friend, is hell. Feel good? Like the reason that the Bible is not often taught in seeker-friendly churches is that the Bible is not actually very seeker-friendly. 
It tells the seeker, you need to die to yourself, come to the cross, accept what he did on your behalf, and then walk with him. It's a glorious reality, but it requires a humility that a lot of people simply don't want to do. Additionally, attending a church that teaches the word, it not only protects you from self-deception, but it actively protects against this tendency for spiritual indifference. Psalms chapter one, the psalmist says, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but blessed is the man whose delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law, he meditates day and night. This man or woman shall be like a tree planted by rivers of water that brings forth its fruit and its season, whose leaves shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. You know, I have found that it's impossible to attend a church where you're taught God's word and live a life of indifference or spiritual compromise. It's impossible. Now, it is true that the word of God It either drives a man or woman in sin to repentance and greater spiritual growth, or it drives that person away from church. The word does not return void. If you go to a church that teaches the Bible, you will either be growing or you'll be leaving. Once again, not exactly very seeker-friendly. It's not exactly a real good methodology if you're wanting to retain people. People are either growing or they're hating what what they're hearing, And so they're leaving. You know, and I've kind of been torn in regards to if I was gonna go this direction, but I am. I'm gonna say this because it needs to be said. It needs to be addressed. I mean no disrespect. I set a whole context by, I think these people are believers and brothers and genuine, but this is garbage. This right here is utter nonsense. I got this in the mail. Maybe you did. This is a new series that started last Sunday at 12 Stone. It's titled, At the Movies, Billion Dollar Stories. Subtitled, Finding Faith and Billion Dollar Stories. Let me read you the subtext. Hollywood has staked a claim on the best stories of all time. But the truth is some of the most valuable stories hidden in the vaults of Hollywood have their roots in one story, God's story. It's why we spend billions on movies every year. We're hardwired for love and adventure, dreams and the future. Join us as we tackle life's big lessons using big screen blockbusters. So this week, just just to make sure that I wasn't being critical when it was a good thing, Um, I have no time for this garbage, but I have an intern that does, has plenty of time. (laughs) And so I told Creighton, I want you to go and watch the first one. It was Jurassic Park discovering purpose in Jurassic Park. Like no Bible, little verses here and there, no scripture. It was self-help self-encouraging, you be the best you and don't get eaten by a dinosaur type of garbage. I happened to be moving, so I was going through my library. Teachable movie moments for 75 modern classic films, videos that teach. Do you know what this is? It's curriculum for middle schoolers. Not for adults. Not for Christians who are dealing with crap in this world and they're needing help. The only thing that can help is not lessons from movies, seriously, but God's word that changes people from the inside out. If I have to do this to be successful, to have a crowd, I'll work at daggum Starbucks and have a church of 50 people that love Jesus, love his word, and wanna get prepared for heaven. If I have to do this to have a crowd, I don't want a crowd because I have to stand before Jesus someday and give an account for what kind of pastor I am. That might not matter to you, it really matters to me. 
because I'm the one that's going to stand there. And the Bible says that teachers are held to a higher standard. And this is weak. Weak. It's Laodicea, man. Fourth, Laodicea was a church so people-centered, they were no longer Christ-centered. Now, that, that demands a little explanation, doesn't it? Did you notice another interesting component of Jesus' criticism here? Jesus says, look at it, you say, I am. You know, if you add that reality to the fact that Jesus will later on say to this church, I stand at the door and knock, like you're left with a really dangerous and somewhat provocative dynamic. And that's the fact that this church was so self-consumed, so people-consumed, that where was Jesus? Jesus was on the outside knocking. Jesus was on the outside wanting in. And they were totally oblivious. Like sadly, this church was focused more on ministry to people than ministry to God. They had become so focused on seeking the lost that they had forgotten that their chief purpose was to seek Jesus. In the end, this church was more about them than it was about him. The word Laodiceans, it's an interesting word. It's a com com combination of words that means the rights of the people. It's the opposite of the word Nicolaitans, which we've been introduced to in previous letters, which means power over the people. Sadly, in this church, the people ruled, and Jesus and his word took a back seat. You know, it's a truth that to the degree in which a church is man-centered is the degree to which the church is no longer God-centered. You can't serve man and God. Man can only have one master. And please note, any attempt, friend, at a Christian life that does not involve Jesus and prioritize his word above everything else is an abomination. It's an affront to God and all of heaven. Tragically, instead of asking Jesus what he wanted his church to be, how he wanted his church to reach a lost group of people disillusioned with the word, instead of asking Jesus, what he would find to be pleasing. These Laodiceans devised their own model of church with the intention of reaching men by pleasing man. Jesus' warning to this church, it's severe, isn't it? Matter of fact, it's probably some of the strongest language ever used in the Bible. Jesus says, I will vomit you out of my mouth. You make me want to puke. It's my translation of it. The idea of vomit is a violent expulsion from the body of that which is making the body sick. And understand, the reason this type of ministry makes Jesus sick is because this type of ministry was sickening to Jesus. This approach, the spiritual result of the Laodicean church and the seeker-friendly model it makes God ill. Let me explain something. It's important for you to understand. Contrary to popular opinion, nowhere in scripture is the church ever called to be a, quote, hospital for the sick. Matter of fact, you would be hard-pressed to find an instance where the church is actually called by God or commissioned by Jesus to reach the lost. Instead, the church itself is called to be a prepping center whereby believers are equipped to go into the world to care for the sick. It was the old covenant model whereby the world came or were brought to a temple in order to encounter God. And yet in the new covenant design, Jesus established his temple, where? In the hearts of men and women, whom he then sent into the world to encounter the lost. Understand, what makes the seeker-friendly model so sickening to Jesus is that while it might be successful in yielding high conversion rates, it's making the church 
sick. You see, when the church focuses on reaching the lost, instead of equipping saints to reach the lost, the body becomes ill. I'll explain. Because the church is being derelict in its duty to fulfill what God has commissioned her for. And what is that? Teaching the Bible in order to equip saints for the ministry. She, in turn, creates a scenario whereby believers no longer need to do theirs, which is taking the gospel into the world. It's the job of the church to equip saints. It's the job of the saints to take the gospel into the world. It's not the job of the church to take the gospel into the world. It's the job of the church to equip you. And when it all gets reversed, when the church oversteps her role, oversteps her job, oversteps her duties, when the church fails to equip believers, she not only is doing your job for you, but as a result, you're allowed to be lukewarm. You know, it's hard to be lukewarm when it's your job to take the gospel into the world. Like if that's your mission, my mission is to come here on Sunday, be taught God's word, and then go into the world and be a missionary. If that's your mission and calling and your equipping, if that's your vantage point, when work is not a job, but a mission field, where school is not a place I go to sleep, but a place I go to evangelize, like when that's your purpose, when like I have a house in a neighborhood, not to get away from the world, but to plant myself right in the middle of it to reach her. You can't be apathetic. But when the church robs you of that mission and says, you just bring them here, or we'll do that for you. We're doing something that's fundamentally dangerous. Please realize for a church to be healthy, and this I hope explains some of what our methodology is, the emphasis of the church service, which is what we call this, right? You ever really thought about the word? It's a service to the church. By whom? By the pastors. The ministry given to the pastors to serve the church. For a church to be healthy, the service of the church should be to equip believers for the ministry by teaching them God's word. And then if we want to be healthy, it's then your job your role, that of the saint, to go out into the world desiring to the, reach the lost. We very rarely have an altar call on a Sunday morning. That, that's not that I don't believe in them or don't think that there's a place for them or role for them. But in all honesty, we don't have an altar call often because our job is equipping saints for the ministry. It's just not the context. It's not the emphasis. Do you realize the altar call should happen when you're evangelizing and sharing your faith and witnessing. Like think through the examples in scripture. It's never like I'm bringing my lost buddy to church so someone else can tell him about Jesus and someone else can give him an opportunity to get saved. No, God sent Philip to the road of Emmaus, right? The, the road down to Gaza. He sent him. And then what did Philip? talking to him, sharing his faith. And it's like, hey, eunuch, I'd really like you to go to church with me this, this Sunday. I know you're ready, but you should, you just come. No, it's like, hey, you want to get saved? Right on. You want to get baptized? Let's do it. This is your job. For a church to be healthy, it's ours to equip you to go do ministry. Note, the great commission was given by Jesus to individual believers not an institutionalized church. The church did not exist quite yet when Jesus gave the Great Commission. It should be noted that following so many difficult criticisms and tough words, Jesus closes with this line. It's, it's kind of mind-boggling. He says, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Like after all of this, Jesus is making it clear that he loved the Laodicean church, and that it was in his love that he was motivated to speak the hard truth. Like you can hear his passion, right? Behold, I'm standing at the door 
and I'm knocking. And if you will hear my voice and open the door, I'll come in and I will dine with you and he with me. While this Laodicean church had been doing church without Jesus, this could all be really quickly and easily remedied. All they had to do was let open the door and let Jesus back in. Now, why was Jesus knocking? Like, what did Jesus want from them? Nothing. Like, like what does he, all he wants to do is dine with them. Like, this speaks of a relationship, an intimacy. Do you realize that all Jesus wants from you is a relationship? Just open so we can hang out, man. I don't need anything from you. I don't want anything from you. You got nothing that I really care about. I just care about you. It's not your money, not your good looks, it's not your talent, none of which really apply to me, but I just love you and I wanna hang out with you. Look again at how Jesus was knocking. He says, I stand at the door and knock, but what? If anyone hears my voice, like how was Jesus knocking? He was knocking through his voice. He was speaking to them. And would they, would they respond? It was a gentle knocking. It was a continual knocking. I'm standing there knocking. My word is going forth. I'm speaking to you. Are you gonna listen? Are you gonna respond? Are you gonna open the door? Powerful. And don't forget who was knocking. I, I love the three things Jesus opens the letters with. And as we mentioned, the three things, like the things Jesus introduces himself as are always the remedy to their problem. He says, I am the amen. You know, we, we, we are familiar with that word in the sense that that's how we close our prayers. Or if you hear something real good in the Bible, so you're like, amen, brother, amen. Okay, none of you do that, but you've been to a church that does that from time to time. Amen, amen, thanks, appreciate it. This word, it means so be it, or that's truth. Like, that's what it means. And when Jesus is now applying this, this phrase to himself, I, I'm the amen. These things says the amen. He's saying that they needed to get back to treating his word as truth. The church needed to get back to being Bible-centric. You know the awesome thing? The awesome thing about Bill Heibel and Andy Stanley and 12 Stones and what all these churches are doing is that next week, if they opened up the Bible and they're like, we're repenting and we're teaching God's word, a revival would take place in America. I believe that. If Joel Olstein would repent and get up on front of television and be like, I was listening to Zach Adams on, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> if, if, but if he was like, I've been giving you nonsense and it hadn't been Jesus. And I, I stand before you and I repent and turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter one or John chapter one and we're just gonna go through the Bible. A revival would happen in America because a church that's leading so many astray would get her act together. The amen, get back to being about the Bible. You can't have revival without it. He also says, these things says the faithful and the true witness. And who is that? You wanna reach people? You wanna witness? Take my example. I'm the witness. This church, in addition to being Bible-centric, they needed to get back to Jesus to be Jesus-centric, to emulate his example. And over and over and over and over again, what was Jesus? Jesus could perform miracles. He had the greatest light show in the world. I mean, it was awesome. Like he had all the, tri he, he was known as a preacher. He taught the Bible. Everywhere he went, he taught the Bible. Get back to me, get back to my methodology. Trust me, I know how to reach people that are disillusioned. And then finally, he says, these things says the beginning of the creation of God. And this doesn't mean that Jesus was the first of the creation of God, but the word beginning, it means origin. This church needed to get back to the main thing. They had replaced creation. They had replaced the creator with creation, people over the savior. You seek me, I'll take care of the rest. Get back to the beginning, the essence, the origin, me. And what I want to do through you, there was still hope for this church. If they would simply realize pleasing Jesus, being found faithful by Jesus is infinitely more important than reaching or pleasing men. He says, be zealous. 
burn with zeal, repent, change your mind. And if they were to do this, and we'll close with this thought, notice what would happen, what they would receive from this relationship. Jesus says, I counsel to buy from me gold refined in the fire, that you may be rich. Like Smyrna, that they would replace their their self-confidence and their material possessions with an eternal confidence in Jesus and his work that they would recognize, as Paul would write in Ephesians, that we have every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies in Christ Jesus. This world offers me nothing. He also says, uh, buy from me white garments that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness might not be revealed. They were trying to cover themselves. And Jesus says, I will give you righteous covering, pure covering, that you might be set apart and distinct. I will replace the black garments. Remember, Laodicea was known for their black wool with a white garment of purity. He says, and that you might anoint your eyes with eye salve. Don't, don't forget also that in Laodicea, they were known for this disinfectant. He's saying, cleanse your eyes so you can see that you might not be blind. And then he says, to him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. What, what's, what blows me away, and, and we'll close with this thought, is this is a tough letter. It's a brutal letter. It's an important letter for us because it should remind us what our purpose, what our mission, what our vision is, and how Jesus evaluates a church. We might not have the largest crowds, but we will be found faithful. And if, if we substitute the teaching of God's word for anything, then you call us on it because you are here to be equipped so that you can fulfill your calling. How dare a church fail in that duty? But you know, what what blows me away is admittedly, like this list of promises, rewards, like it's the most glorious. Like Jesus' strongest criticisms of any of these churches also comes with his most glory. You will sit with me on my throne. That's awesome. And my exhortation is not only that we might not be the church of Laodicea. And for you, that if you don't want to find yourself placed under these criticisms, that you would resist the appeal of the church of Laodicea, which is great. Who doesn't want to feel real good about themselves and be deceived? As as the matrix, you know, ignorance can be bliss. Do you want truth? But when it's all said and done, my appeal to anyone that might watch this video that might be coming from any of these churches, Jesus, there's still hope. He still wants to work and revival can happen.